distress. He's filled with fear. He's terrified. All throughout this text, we find these words used to describe what's going on in his heart. Now, this is all data to help us understand what is about to come. The narrator is setting us up for this story. And so we begin with what I'm calling desperate times. Desperate times, verse 6. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Now, what should God and his children do um, during times of great crisis? What should you and I do during times of great crisis? Well, the answer, of course, is make sure we turn to the Lord. Make sure the focus of our heart and our attention is on the things of the Lord and desiring to follow his will. So we turn to God for wisdom, for counsel, for perspective. But when Saul turns to God, he did the right thing. He turns to the Lord, but he hears no answer. All he hears is silence. So Samuel the prophet is dead. He was the mouthpiece that God had brought alongside Saul to give him counsel and instruction in his kingly rule. But he's gone. The ephod is what the priests wore. But if you remember, Saul killed off the priests when he went and he took over Nob. He wiped them clean, except for one. Abiathar, and he took the ephod, but he's with David. So Saul doesn't have a prophet. He doesn't have a priest that has the ephod. And that was a way you could actually discern and inquire from God his will. And it says he also didn't have any dreams. There wasn't any way that Saul was able to discern God's intention or what was going to happen the next day because these Philistines had gathered for battle. So he's afraid. The Philistines are coming. His kingly reign is in jeopardy. And Saul wants to know what he should do. He wants to know if he'll survive. He wants hope for the immediate future. But all he's getting from God is silence. But Saul, friends, had done this to himself. He had rejected God's word. Now here's the principle that we're going to flesh out in this first part. It's this. If you reject God's word, you're only left with silence from God. I mean, if you have your Bible with you or your iPad, whatever you're using, or your phone, just look at the text of Scripture and just be reminded that this is God's Word. But if you reject this, you have no access to knowing God's thoughts. Oh, you have a general understanding that God exists from creation. We're told that in Scripture. But the specific guidance and counsel from God has been removed from you. And so he is silent to you when that is the case. Turning your Bibles to Psalm 1, if you would, please. We want to see this kind of fleshed out a little bit. In Psalm 1, we're presented with a comparison between the godly or the blessed man and the ungodly. And the distinguishing difference is that the blessed man has made it a point to delight in the law of the Lord. Look at verse 3. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. This is a result of being rooted and delighting 
in the word of God. But the ungodly who don't delight in the law of the Lord are like the chaff that the wind drives away. You know, the chaff, it's the husk, and you'd, you'd throw up the, the grain, and the wind would catch the husk, and it was a waste, and it would just drive that away, and the, the good grain would land on the ground. But the ungodly don't have any weight to them. They don't have any guidance. They don't have any substance because they have rejected the word of God. Then turn to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 1. In Proverbs 1, God counsels us through the words of Solomon to listen to wisdom. We'll pick it up at verse 20. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. Now, wisdom is crying out. Wisdom is speaking to be heard. Verse 22, how long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in the scoffing of fools and hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, I have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded because you have ignored all my counsel and would none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools is destroyed or destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. That's a pretty powerful passage, isn't it? Here is God's truth being proclaimed. There is knowledge being poured out. And let's just understand the definition here. Wisdom is the skillful application of knowledge. Let me put it this way. Stephen Curry is a wise basketball player because he applies the knowledge of basketball in a skillful way. Bill Gates is a wise man when it comes to the application of technology. He's built a whole world based on that technology. God calls us then to take the knowledge that we receive and to be wise with it, to be skillful in the application of biblical truth to life. But if we reject God, if we reject his word, we're rejecting the wisdom that comes from knowing his word. And when we do that, crickets, silence. Then Romans 1. Romans 1, if you would, please. In Romans 1, we're told the following. I'm picking it up at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. 
and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to, the, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women that were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Listen, when, the, when God's word is rejected, friends, not only is God silent, but he also removes his word from us. In Romans 1, God allows the sinful hearts of those who are rejecting his word to bear fruit. So he gives them up to the lusts of their hearts. In other words, he, to, to freely do what they want to do. He gives them up to dishonorable passions because that is the fruit of pursuing the lusts of their hearts. He gives them up to debased or a reprobate mind that does what ought not to be done. So if you reject God's word, you're left with silence from God, but you will also be rejected or you will have that word of God taken away from you. So God guides his children through his word. So how can we expect to know God's will if we abandon it? But friends, that is how so many people function. And that is actually how many people within the broad category of the church function. They seek to discern God's will apart from God's word. And so what happens is the centrality of word is often removed from the context of church. Oh, it's present, but it's not central. It's not the focal point. And oftentimes it's replaced with some kind of experiential Christianity, maybe primarily in the area of music, where the real thing is, is through the music to somehow get into this, this emotional, worshipful uh, kind of a, that's not what they would say, spiritual kind of a state so that you can connect with God. And what's happened is that we've come to a place where we're actually now using a modern-day understanding of what it means to have a relationship with God and creating that when that's not what Scripture is talking about. We're not here to, to somehow get into a mantra to connect with God. We connect with God when we are obedient, when we talk with Him, when we pray. You don't have to somehow charge yourself up for that. But oftentimes, that's, that's the focus. Oh, church was great today. Why? Oh, worship was fantastic. Well, what about the Word? Did you learn something? Did it convict you? Were you changed? Or is it some kind of a sentimental feeling that you got? See, the word of God must be central. And I'm not saying that just because I'm a, I'm a pastor. I say that because that's the heartbeat of the church in the Bible. That's what we're called to do. And worship, just like we did this morning, is a means by which we complement the word of God being proclaimed. There has been a rise in mystical thinking and behavior in the church that that views the word of God simply as a means to deeper experience rather than clear 
or the clear and objective counsel and instruction from God. In other words, the Word is what God uses to draw me to Him, but it's not necessarily the Word itself that is the means by which God is guiding us. So it becomes much more of a mystical thing. I was reading God's Word, and I felt the Holy Spirit. Well, what you're feeling and what the Word says, are they one and the same? Or is it the mystical feeling that you have that is really what is driving you, or is it the Word of God that is driving what's going on there? And these are, these are subtle things, friends, that we've got to be careful with. Because when I choose mysticism over the truth of God's Word, what have I done? I've said no to God's Word, and I've embraced something else. And when I've embraced something else, I'm no longer embracing what God has revealed. He's actually silent to me because I'm pursuing something that is not what Scripture says. And you can also add into that things like psychology, just adding that as to solving man's problem through man's thinking as opposed to going to the Word of God and saying, this is what God says is the core reality of our problem. When we do that, we have rejected God's Word and ultimately we're left with silence from God unless we pick up that Word and we take it seriously. So this is the desperate time. This is what Saul is going through. These circumstances in his life are happening, and he isn't hearing from God. What to do? Well, one of the things that a person who's supposed to be a child of God should do when they don't feel, if you want to put it that way, or they're not hearing from God, is to humble themselves before that God and to repent. There must be something that is hindering me in my relationship, but that is not what Saul does. Desperate times here call for desperate measures. And this is a desperate time that turned into this desperate measure. He's alone, he's feeling afraid, he's hopeless, and God is silent. And since Saul wasn't hearing from God, since there seemed to be no access to hear from God, Saul sought his own way to gain information and guidance from God that he was seeking after. So as the saying goes, desperate times do go for, call for desperate measures, but desperate measures come in two forms. Sometimes desperate measures are good, and sometimes they're bad. They're good if those desperate measures point us to a place of repentance, point us to a place where we're saying, God, these things are happening. These feelings I'm experiencing right now are, are forcing me now to open God's word, to, to see what my sin is, and to come to you. And, and, and repent of my sin and confess my sin before you and be restored to you. Or it can be a kind of bad, desperate measure, and that's the kind of desperate measure that Saul now turns to because ultimately Saul abandons God and he turns to Satan. So that's pretty drastic, Pastor Rod. No, it's pretty true. Let me show you what I'm saying. Here's the principle. All right? The principle is this. If you reject God, what are you left with? You're only left with Satan. Now, he, he comes in many forms. But if you reject God, you're only left with one alternative. And that is to pursue another avenue. And that avenue, of course, is the avenue where Satan is ruling. When we abandon God, we leave the light we find ourselves in the darkness. 
And darkness, as we mentioned, has many forms, but it's still darkness. And so let's see how this is played out. We have this, this encounter with the medium of Endor. We're going to take a little time to kind of walk through this, but notice verse 7. Then Saul said to his servant, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So the first little section here, I'm just entitling it Seeking the Witch. This, of course is the reason the narrator reminds us that one of the good things that Saul did was to put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Because that is significant now to the story. Here's the king doing what God says should be done, and now when he's not hearing from God, what is this king who's established this rule doing? He himself now is pursuing a medium, a necromancer. So he's willing to violate not only the word of God, but the will of God to pursue what he feels he needs for this moment. And the other thing that just we quickly pick up here is that there's, there's this, some cheeky information in the story, right? His servants know exactly where to find this woman. I mean, right away, boom, oh, yeah, we know where this person is. She's in Endor. And it just reminds us that although Samuel had been faithfully restoring the word of God to Israel, that there was still, still this syncretistic attitude. That means there was still this, this, yes, worship of Yahweh, but there was also pagan worship going on in the land. And both of them were taking place here. And those that wanted to follow paganism could find it. It was still there. So now Saul is behaving as a hypocrite because he's worshiping at the altar of fear and despair. It's his fear, it's his despair that is driving him now to pursue this knowledge, because he can't hear from God, to pursue this knowledge of what God says is going to happen through a medium, through a necromancer. He's willing to abandon his own conviction for the sake of satisfying his own sinful desires. I have to know, he's thinking, what will happen with the Philistines. I must know. And if that means going to a medium, something and someone my law condemns, I'm willing to do it. I wonder, friends, have you ever been there? Have you ever been to the place where you're willing to move from the, the light into the darkness because you feel the darkness is the only place where you're satisfied or your desires will be satisfied, where your desires will be met? So you're willing to abandon truth, principles that you know are true, that you would, that you would sign on the dotted line, yes, this, this needs to take place, yes, this is true, but I'm willing now to abandon it, to satisfy my own desire. All right? Now, let's think about visiting the witch. Look at verse 8. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went. He and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. So not only was Saul desperate to find this woman, but the geography of the text lets us know that he was also desperate to visit her. Now, let me explain what was going on in the geography of the text. The narrator very carefully lays out where the Israelite army is. They're on Mount Gilboa, where the Philistine army is. And the Philistine army, they are in, uh, is it Shuman? What does it say there? Da, 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 da. 
Um, yeah, Shunem, right? And, and so what happens is you, they're, they're across the valley, but they're on this, there's like this, this, this mountain that's more like a hill, but it's a big hill, and they're up kind of on the side of this mountain. Endor is across the valley and behind that mountain. So the geography tells us here that in order for Saul to get from where he is with the Israelites, what does he have to do? He has to go through the territory or skirt around the territory where the Philistines are encamped to get around this mountain where the witch of Endor is. So, when we read that he's disguised, remember, Saul was a big guy, right? The reason for the disguise could be a number of things. But remember how he needed to travel here. The geography is saying not only is he desperate to find out where she is, he's desperate to get there. And he's willing to even put his life on the line to go this journey about eight miles to get to this witch's home so that he can find out the answers to his questions. So he knows that he is desperately violating God's will, but he also knows that he's desperately flirting with the enemy. And I would think about speaking to the witch now, just moving along in, in the passage here. When Saul arrives, he asks the woman to bring up a spirit for him. She is shrewd and knows that the king, that she hasn't identified yet, has banned mediums and necromancers from the land. So she's wondering, is this a sting? You know, is, are they pulling a fast one here. So she's kind of feeling out the situation. And, 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 and then Saul does something. He assures her that he has no intention of harming her. And that the narrator is very, very clear to help us understand what is going on here. Verse 10, but Saul swore to her by the Lord. He says, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Just think of the irony of that. Here's Saul abandoning God, being disobedient to God, finding himself in a place where he's trying to find out the information that God will not give him, that God has, has been silent about. And when she asks you know, are you going to do any harm? He's like, no, 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 by the name of the Lord. I wonder how often in the midst of our sinfulness we actually bring God to stand with us, so to speak, to reinforce something that we're doing in the midst of all of that. Even Saul, in the, the thick of pursuing sin, he is willing to swear by the Lord. And friends, this is how sin has a way of twisting and perverting our thinking so that we think nothing of such hypocrisy. Now, I just, I just thought about this. What would be a way to kind of picture this? Just imagine there's, there's four guys getting together and they want to rob a bank. And so before they actually go into the bank, they're in the car, they're getting ready to go out, they're getting their guns together, they're getting their masks ready, and they say, let's have a word of prayer. And they go in. You see the, 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 the foolishness of that. Now, I'm not expecting that's where you're living right now, okay? But I share that to kind of make a point. Now, may, maybe, here's, here's a little one. I'll, just, I'll use parenting as an example of this, right? Here's, a, here's a, a parent who has had a long day, a difficult day, and they have a toddler, and this toddler has been throwing tantrums again and again and again. And you're tired and you're fed up, and so you respond in desperate anger, and you scream in their face, God says to obey your parents, or it won't go well with you. So are you going to obey? 
And what you've done is you've brought God into your sinful anger. So we, we, can, we, can, we can knock Saul, but let's take ownership of ways in which we bring God into our own sinfulness here. Now notice the appearance of Samuel, and there's actually a lot of debate about this, but we'll read through this and we'll think through some conclusions, because I think this is helpful for us. And the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God, little g, coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Like I said, there's a lot of debate about exactly what is going on in this passage. Some think that this is not Samuel at all, that this is somehow Satan disguised as Samuel. Let me read for you just a couple of people you probably know about from history. Martin Luther says, who could believe that the souls of believers who are in the hand of God and in the bosom of Abraham were under the power of the devil? John Calvin adds, God would never have allowed his prophets to be subjected to such diabolical conjuring as if the devil had power over the bodies and souls of the saints which are his in keeping. And so Luther concluded ultimately that the appearance of Samuel was a deception of Satan. Calvin um, suspected that the delusion, that this was a delusion in the head of the witch and also of Saul. And that was how they kind of explained the situation. But I want to just draw, yourself, draw you to a couple of things in the text that might help us at least understand. And this is, this is where I would land the plane, and you can land the plane a little differently, but this, this is helpful for me as I think through what's going on here. All right? Saul does ask the woman to bring up Samuel, but it doesn't say that she brought him up. What it actually says is that she recognized both Samuel and Saul. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. Now you can say the assumption is that she brought him up, but it doesn't say that she did that. Okay? Now, not only that, she cries out with this loud voice. This is, this is more like a shriek. So she sees Samuel and is like, ah! It's like a loud voice that everyone can hear. Why is that happening? It may very well be that as a fortune teller, as a um, medium, as a necromancer, someone who brings up the dead to speak to them, that she actually has been functioning in her practice um, in a fraudulent way. As if what this all has been through her life has been a charade, and now the real thing is happening, and she's taken back by it. So she's shocked to see Samuel, and she's shocked now by seeing Samuel to see that this is actually Saul. That's one conclusion, and that's probably where I would land the plane. I always want to step back and say this. That doesn't mean, doesn't mean that um, mediums or necromancy can never be done. I want to be careful there. And what I mean by that is to say this, is that the reason it is banished from the land is not because it works, but because it's wicked and evil. The question is not whether it works or not. The question is whether it's wicked or evil. But here, it seems like 
Samuel is not necessarily being brought up by her. It is being, he is being brought up by the providence of God. In other words, God in his providence permitted on this occasion the soul of Samuel the prophet to come as a witness from heaven to confirm the word he had spoken earlier to Saul. And let's just remind ourselves, this is not the only place in Scripture where dead people from the past have been brought up and have been seen by those who are alive. Remember the transfiguration. There you have Moses and Elijah present, walking with Jesus. Okay? So you can think about it. You can come to your conclusion. The bottom line is, here we have Samuel, and by the way, if you look down at verse 15, the narrator says, now Samuel spoke, or something along those lines. He identifies this person as Samuel. He's giving legitimacy. This is not some spirit. This actually is Samuel. Now, the evil person in this text is not the witch. She has her own responsibilities. The evil person in this text is Saul. That's really important for us to understand. He's rejected God. He said no to God repeatedly throughout his life. He's simply reaping what he has sown. He's gone over to the dark side, so to speak. He has abandoned God by refusing to listen to him over and over and over again. And so this is the fruit of all that. And he is, he is behaving and acting in an evil way before God by pursuing this line of inquiry. And when you and I do that, we have no place to turn except to Satan. When we abandon God, we have no other way to get to God. And so we're left only with Satan. And friends, there's no other way to get to God than through Jesus Christ. We must hold firm to that. Every other attempted avenue is a path laid out by the devil. He wants you to think that you can get to God on your own terms. He wants you to think that God is evolving in his thinking as the world he creates gets more and more sophisticated, that the things that people held to in the past, are they're, they're foolish and they're, they're now wicked because the new sophisticated stuff is truly what God was all about. That's a very contemporary argument. And Satan loves that. He wants you to think that you can create the God of your own imagination and that your created God is the same person as the God of the Bible, but he's not. If we're going to be creating God in our own image for our own purposes, he's going to be a distorted God who's there simply to satisfy our own desires. So friends, that is a lie. It is pure deception. Every attempt to get to the God of the universe that rejects the God of creation, that, that rejects the God of Israel, rejects the God of Christianity is an attempt that has rejected God and is being borne along by Satan. Friends, just grasp that, wrestle with that. He wants to try to get you to work your way to God rather than rest on the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. He wants you to, to try to connect with God through some mystical experience rather than resting on the steady diet of God's word and prayer. He loves it when you seek to know God by dwelling on your dreams to find some kind of a hidden message from God or looking for signs in like things like the clouds in your food. Yes, in your food. You've seen those things maybe on, you know, on, on, on computer. You know, it's like someone 
someone fried an egg and it looked like the Virgin Mary or something like that, right? People, people are all like, wow, this is great. God's speaking to me. No, he's not. That's just a fried egg. <laughs> you know what it's like. I, I remember, I think we talked about this. I remember growing up in, 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 our, in our bathroom and, you know, we all go to use the restroom and sometimes we're in there for a little longer than we want and there are patterns in the floor and you start looking at the patterns. Oh, there's a face. And there's a shape. And you know what I'm talking about, don't you, right? And your mind begins to think of things that, that aren't there. When we were in Bolivia, as we go up to the Inca ruins, we always drive this by this one place, and it's like there's this rock formation, and it looks like an Inca guy, like a warrior. It's really, it's, it's kind of weird. And you have to kind of drive by and see at the angle, but when it comes down to it, it's just a piece of rock. But how easily we're drawn away for the sensational rather than say, this is the word of God. This is where food and direction and counsel comes from. But see, Satan would love for you to be drawn away by those things. If you reject God, you're left with the cruel bondage of the empty deception of Satan. It's cruel because it seems spiritual. It's empty because it is a work that is never satisfied. And it's bondage because now you're in his grip. That's the witch of Endor. Now let's think about what moves on next as, as we're, we're moving now from the encounter with the witch more to the encounter with Samuel himself. So we see Samuel from the grave. It says in verse 15, Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I'm in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by the prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. Now notice he, he's not concerned about restoring his relationship with God. He's just more concerned about the fact that he can't hear from God to know what he should do, practically speaking. Now it's worth remembering that as Samuel ministered before Saul and then while he was with Saul and anointing him king, Samuel was very candid and very bold in his speaking for God. Samuel didn't tell Saul what he wanted to hear. In both chapters 13 and chapters 15, Samuel rebukes Saul for his sin and tells him frankly that he is going to lose his kingdom to a neighbor. With that in mind, what does Saul expect to hear differently from Samuel? I mean, if he's, if he's hoping for some compassion, he's, he's up for a rude awakening. Remember, Saul is, is seeking out Samuel in disobedience to God. Why would he think that Samuel, a faithful servant of God, even though he's being raised up from the grave, would change his message? He's a prophet of God. What does a prophet of God do? They simply speak what God tells them to speak. So in this case, Samuel spoke God's word to Saul. Saul's logic here is twisted. But that's what happens when you are in the grip of hopeless desperation. It makes you think and believe that you still have hope apart from God and his word. It makes you think that you can abandon God and still be in communion with God. So what does Samuel say? Look at verse 16 and following. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned away from you and, be, and become your enemy? 
the Lord has done to you and as he's spoken to me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against, the, against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. In essence, Samuel is saying nothing different than he's already said. All that he's adding to it is identifying David as the neighbor and giving much more of a timely answer to, yeah, this is going to happen tomorrow. And friends, this is the word of God. This is the word of God to Saul. And ultimately what Samuel is saying is this. Saul, since you rejected God, he is rejecting you. And friends, that is the principle that we must grapple with here. If you reject God, he will reject you. Let those words penetrate. Let those words settle. Let those words have an effect on your heart right now as you're thinking through people that you love, people that you share the gospel with, people that you know that are shaking their fist at God. This seems harsh, doesn't it? It seems harsh to think that the God that is called a loving God would reject those who reject him. I mean, isn't God supposed to be a God of mercy and a God of grace? Sure he is. So how can a loving God reject me? That doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem loving. But when man says, I don't believe in the God of the Bible, he is rejecting God. And if he continues in that sin of unbelief, he will die in that sin of unbelief. As all men do, he will suffer eternal rejection from God unless he's repentant and he believes. You see, the unpardonable sin is the sin of unbelief. If you do not believe, you have no hope. And not only do you have no hope, you will be rejected by God. That's what happens here with Saul. He doesn't believe. He doesn't listen. He rejects God. He doesn't want to follow God's plan. So God ultimately is rejecting him. So those who are guilty of unbelief are ultimately judged fairly and justly by God and are condemned to an eternity in the lake of fire. This was not good news for Saul. He is so desperate, but he finds no help even in his pagan pursuit of knowledge. He gets only the reminder of his rejection and the promise of his coming death. Not a good day for Saul. And that moves us now into desperate times, call for desperate measures, but they also have desperate realities. As the news of utter rejection from God sets in, Saul responds physically by falling to the ground, paralyzed and totally exhausted. And his heart is filled with fear. Let's just think about his fear and fatigue. Verse 20, then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear, because of the words of Samuel, 
And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. I just want you to think about this. There are aspects here that, that lend to the story, right? He hadn't eaten. He had also traveled at night. Let me ask you, is it, is it more difficult to travel at night than it is during the day? You've got to watch out for your footing. Traveled about eight miles by foot. Have fun with that. Over rough terrain. Around the Philistines to get there. So add all these things together, and he is exhausted, and he is afraid. He is full of fear. His heart is trembling greatly. See, this is all, this is all language now that just seems to be flowing through this text. Here's, here's the character of Saul. He is a man who is full of fear. This is his, this is his Achilles heel, fear. And ultimately, as the witch or the woman looks at him, she sees that he is terrified. The strength has gone from his body because in his distress, he's not been eating. Friends, it's the, it's the, the anticipation of the fulfillment of what God says is going to happen that has now shocked him senseless, so to speak. The reality of death and disaster of his family has set in. The realities of rejection, of death and humiliation are clearly before him. Saul is a picture here of every man who forsakes God's repeated appeals, who declines to embrace God, the, the gospel and, and then hardens his heart against the, the whole word of God and the, the, the will of God, only to arrive at a day when a wrathful God is no longer willing to speak with words of grace. And friends, hear this. There will come a day when every knee will bow before God, either in worship or ultimately as they are judged to be condemned to the lake of fire. It's the reality. It's what Scripture teaches. This is what a just, righteous, loving, fair God does. He's rejecting you because you have rejected his constant appeals. So don't be so hard-hearted to reject God over and over and over again or you'll end up just like Saul, desperate, hopeless, terrified at the prospect before you. But just as there is no greater misery than to realize that you are abandoned by God in the hour of your need, there's no greater comfort than to remember God's gracious help for those who call on him in faith. God's children before themselves uh, or bathe themselves, I should say, on the truth revealed in God's word. Here's just a couple of verses of scripture, and you can, you can navigate around through your Bible and find very similar texts. But here's one, Hebrews, um, Hebrews 13 tells us, he will never leave us or forsake us. My friends, we may not know the reference, but we know the truth. And we remind ourselves of that reality as a child of God, that is a promise that we hold dear. Psalm 118, verse 6, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, other truths like that, we, we just hold dear because we, we're reminded that as God's children, we don't have to be like Saul. We can come to God, we can come to him asking for forgiveness, asking for help, asking for guidance, and, and when we're pursuing him, he will give that to us. So not only do we see his fear and anguish, or his fear and fatigue, I should say, we also see Saul's Last Supper. Now, 
I'm not exactly sure. The text doesn't tell us why necessarily, but it seems like the woman here, the witch here, has a little compassion on him during this time. She understands the depth of his trouble. Here's a man who is condemned to death. The next day, so to speak, he's going to go out to the gallows. And so she prepares for him a meal fit for a king. But he doesn't want to eat until he is encouraged by his servants and those around him. He finally does. And you know, it just, it draws, it draws our attention to, to some of the language in here that, that points further on in the Bible to another night when Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples and there is one who's already determined that he is going to go out and betray Jesus. It says in John 13, 30, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Look at verse 24 of our text. Now, when the woman had, fat, had a fattened calf in the house, she quickly killed it and took flour and kneaded it and baked uh, unleavened bread of it, and she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away at night. There, there's something about the, the darkness in this passage that is there not necessarily just to say it was nighttime. This was the darkest day in Saul's life apart from his death, which would take place the next day. And in John's gospel, as he talks about what was going to happen, there's, there's, there's an important theme that's going on between the light and dark. And as we read this passage in John 13, 30, after receiving a morsel of bread, he immediately, talking about Judas, went out, and it was night. And it's not just describing the condition of the time of day, it's also describing the condition of Judas' soul and the ultimate destiny of a heart of unbelief. You know, we can be reminded that to turn from the light and pursue darkness of sin, Matthew says, it would have been better for that man, talking about Judas again, if he had not even been born. Those are chilling words, are they not? See, Saul is forsaken by God because of his own sins that he committed in rejecting God. But Jesus is forsaken by God because he bore sins he did not commit. In obedience to God's sovereign plan of redemption, he entered darkness so that through his death we might be brought into light through his sacrifice. Turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 10, if you would, please. The writer of 1 Chronicles brings, kind of summarizes what we're reading in this story. 1 Chronicles 10, verses 13 and 14, here's what it says. So Saul died for his breach of faith. What's breach of faith? Unbelief. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the commandment of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Those are chilling words, friends. He had all the resources available to him, but he chose to reject God, to reject his word. Now, I want to conclude with, with three thoughts this morning. Three thoughts that I think just kind of may, maybe are helpful in, in moving us in a certain direction to think a little bit more about this passage. 
in, in our desperation, in your desperation, first of all, beware of seeking the results of God's favor more than God's favor. Beware of seeking the results of God's favor more than God's favor. The results of God's favor are things like peace and comfort and security and stability and confidence and assurance. We talk about knowing the will of God. And it's good to know the will of God. It's good to think about the will of God. But be careful that you're not trying to seek God's will rather than seeking God first. And that's the point here. You cannot bypass God's favor to arrive at the results of God's favor. You must get to the results of God's favor by by going through God. And here's here's Saul who's seeking God's favor, that is knowledge about what's going to happen. But he isn't really interested in God and how much we want peace, and how much we want comfort, and how much we want guidance, and we can so easily seek those things by bypassing God himself. And the best way for us to to know the results of God's favor is to make sure that we are pursuing God himself. So in other words, in order to have peace or comfort or assurance in your life, you need to be seeking God First, And what is so sad about this passage is that Saul never sought to restore his relationship with God. He only wanted to know the outcome of the battle. He only wanted to have the information and the assurance that he would be okay. He wasn't concerned about his relationship with God. He was just concerned about himself. Secondly, Beware of seeking the realm of Satan rather than clinging to God. In other words, if you feel rejected by God, if it seems by your estimation that God is far from you, don't abandon God. Don't leave God. Don't go into the realm of Satan. Follow the advice of the Psalms and pursue God even more. I would want you to write down Psalm 77. This is just a great psalm because it begins with a person who's gone through this great trial and they're asking these questions over and over and over again and they're questions that are just just shy of being blasphemy about who God is and what he's done. And yet, having asked those questions, they don't just give up. They begin to wrestle themselves back to the place of restoration by reminding themselves of who God is, what he is like, what he has promised. And so rather than if you feel like God is distant from you, just saying, I'm going to give up and I'm going to go somewhere else, God wants you to fight through that by saying, what is it that I really need to learn about God? What is it I need to learn about myself? It is when you feel rejected by God that you need to open up God's word and soak in all the promises that he has given his children. And it's likely, friends, that you have distorted uh, a view of God, a view of man, a view of sin, and a view of your salvation because you are not in the word of God. So you come to conclusions that are so far from reality. You feel that God is distant from you when he's actually there all the time. But it's because your view of God, your view of your own sin, your view of your own humanity 
has been distorted by other things that you're bringing into the picture. So don't try and find answers to your feelings of rejection in places other than God and His Word. God is clear and He's eager to bring counsel and guidance and comfort to those who are seeking Him. Here's the last one. In your desperation, beware of mystical approaches to pursuing a knowledge of God and His will. Mysticism tends towards sensationalism, the experiential, the subjective. Now, certainly not saying don't be a Christian who feels. God's created us with affections. We need to be people who are reading God's word, weeping over God's word, wrestling with God's word, you know, experiencing joy because of what we find God's word telling us about who we are in Christ. But friends, our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked, and we need a standard to guide our thoughts. Mysticism doesn't have a standard to guide itself. It just is subjective. It's what you feel in that moment. We have God's word to give us parameters, to give us boundaries, to give us uh, protection so that we can see what we need to know about God, his attributes, his ways, his expectations, his counsel, to see what we need to know about ourselves, our sinfulness, our bondage, how we're easily led astray, how we need a Savior, and we need the Word of God to, to give us these boundaries so that we can come face to face with the gospel and see it in its beauty. What might appear to be a harsh gospel is actually the beautiful gospel that says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You, because of your sin, deserve the wrath of God. That you are already condemned. But God, in his love for you, sends Jesus Christ to be your Savior, to pay for your sin, to bear that wrath, to reconcile you from this place of being an enemy to being a friend and a family member. It is God who then brings reconciliation when you could not have done a thing. And so this seemingly harsh gospel really is a beautiful picture of what Christ has done in us by virtue of what he's done for us in Jesus Christ himself. Died on the cross, paid for our sin, satisfied the debt that was necessary, took upon himself the sin of the world, bore it on his shoulders. Turn, if you would, please, finally to Psalm 42 and verse 5. Psalm 42 and verse 5, and we'll finish with this. The psalmist says in verse 5, Why are you, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? What's the answer? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The answer to hopelessness, the answer to despair, is to turn to God, to hope in him. And you work through that by opening up the word of God seeing what it says about him, becoming to terms with what it is that you're struggling with, 
Allow him to counsel you. Allow him to guide you. Lord, we've wrestled with a number of things this morning. And I ask that you would, you would take these truths and, Lord, allow them to, to, to kind of simmer in our hearts. For us to ask the question whether or not we are the kind of people that, that have abandoned your word. Are we the kind of people that, that simply show up to church with our Bibles? Are we the kind of people that are picking up our Bibles throughout the week and, and feeding on it regularly so that we can be communing with you? And maybe the silence that we are feeling or thinking is the result of us neglecting the word of God in our lives. But I wonder if there's some of us here who have rejected you. And as a result of that, Lord, we are feeling distant from you. That's understandable. But Lord, you're calling us now to come to a place where we repent of our sins and we restore that relationship with you. And you're pleading us with us through this passage not to go to other places to seek to find answers about how we relate to you, but to come back to you, come back to your word, and to trust that you work through the word and prayer. And Lord, that we can be restored in that relationship with you. It's so easy, Lord, to, to bypass what's most important, to get what we want. But Lord, as the psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And Lord, you desire our delight and when we delight in you, Lord, you change our affections to be in conformity with you. So, Lord, help us to come back to that place, to find our delight in you, to find our joy in you. And, Lord, that you would be conforming us to be the kind of people you've called us to be. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.